Most of us have a problem with grace. It's really true. Most of us do. We have a problem with grace. Let's define the terms. Grace. Favor or merit undeserved. Grace. Unmerited assistance. Grace. A virtue coming from God. Grace. A state of sanctification enjoyed through divine assistance. Grace. Mercy. Grace. Pardon. Grace. A special favor or privilege. Grace. Clemency. Grace. Reprieve. You're listening to that, you're thinking, sounds pretty good to me. Right? Sounds pretty good to me. I got no problem with that. I got no problem with grace. What's the problem with grace? Here's the problem with grace. We like to get it, but we don't like to give it. A few examples, perhaps. Hypothetically speaking, let's say you were leaving the Petro-Canada gas station on Stone Road on Friday afternoon during rush hour, hypothetically speaking. And let's say you happen to live in Old University, which means in a block and a half, you have to get across three lanes in order to be able to turn left on Edinburgh to head north to your neighborhood. It's not personal. You just need to turn left. I mean, technically, you could keep going straight on Stone Road to Victoria Road, go north on Victoria to college, turn left on college, and then right on Edinburgh. You could do that. Or, like someone who shall remain nameless, happens to be gorgeous Italian and was in first service sitting right in the front row, what she'll do is turn right on Edinburgh and go south on Edinburgh all the way down to Scottsdale, turn left. Anyway, it's crazy. So you've got to get across three lanes. It's not your fault. So you put your signal on and... By God's grace, you just start to turn left. Because you've been waiting for someone to show you some grace and let you in, but it's just not happening. Hypothetically speaking, say you're coming home from the GTA, you're driving north on the Hanlon, you have to get gas at Petro-Canada, so you turn right on Stone Road. But then you remember that you're kind of late for dinner, so you'll get gas tomorrow. So as you approach that gas station, some numbskull pulls out in front of you, puts a signal on, and wants to turn left right in front of you. You're like, you jerk! Can't you see I'm driving here? You see the problem. Or how about this one? Say you're um, walking into that gas station and a lady is walking up at the same time as you and it's howling snow and wind and it's freezing cold. You're about to hit the door at the same time. What do you do? Do you open the door and go in? Or do you defer, hold the door for her and let her go first? Better yet, if once inside the Petro-Canada... There happened to be eight people in line. Should she take the ninth place? Or should she do the right thing and now defer to you, allow you to take the ninth place and she takes the tenth place? Hypothetically speaking. But the grocery store, let's say, it's still Friday night, mind you, that you've stopped at Metro to buy a couple things for Friday night. And say you have like three items in your basket loaf of French bread, some nice cheese, and some beer. This means that you now have to go in the smart serve line. There's 17 people doing the same thing. As you approach that line, the person in front of you has 150 items. Should that person defer to you and say, hey, I noticed that you only have three items. Why don't you go ahead? Now say, you happen to be waiting in line. 
and you're in the express checkout lane. You're a little stressed because, you know, you want to get home. I'm not saying I've ever done this, but you happen to count the number of items the woman in front of you happens to have in her basket, and she has 13 items, even though the sign clearly says 12 items or less. Do you say to her, ma'am, like my pastor whose eyes are not as good as they used to be, perhaps you can't read the sign that says, this lane is for those with 12 items. And she says to you, young man, those three bunches of bananas are one item. There's a tension that lurks within all our hearts between justice and grace. Am I right? We love justice. We want to see the right thing done. Unless we've done something wrong, in which case we want grace. This tension that exists in us between justice and grace proves a few things about us as humans. It proves that we are not meant to be sinners. Our affection for justice shows us that we are like God in some way. And the Bible clearly teaches this. Genesis itself says that we were made in his image and likeness, literally in his reflection. We are like God. I emphasized this last week. I think it's time for us as Jesus people to perhaps reappropriate our God-likeness. I think sometimes we sell ourselves a little short in that department. So we are like God in that we want to see justice done. But we are very, very fallen, sinful, and broken because we never ever really act justly, love mercy, or walk humbly with our God. We never ever really truly do the right thing in any given situation. We are constantly in need of grace ourselves, and even though we are constantly in need of grace ourselves and know it, we are slow to give grace to others. In one tension, the tension between justice and grace, we see that we're like God, but we are fallen. Again, the Bible clearly teaches us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Further, in 1 John 4.10, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. I say this to you every week, that Jesus Christ had to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. Further, in Romans 5.8, we read, while we were yet sinners... Jesus Christ died for us. This is one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament. While we were yet sinners, even in the midst of our sinning, Jesus Christ died for us. Here's your thesis this morning. Grace is your only hope, so start acting like it. But how? Right? How? Sounds good, but how? Well, fortunately for you this morning, Genesis 33 has some clues. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Speaking about the gifts that Jacob had sent ahead of them, Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. 
Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dwelt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, um, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me uh, find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohei Yisrael. We see here in uh, Genesis 33 some of the ways that life might look for you on your way to grace. So that's what you're looking for as we work through this. Some of the ways that life might look for you on your way to grace. The first thing that life might look for you like on your way to grace is a reckoning. Life might look like a reckoning. Accounts are going to come due. At some point, you're going to have to pay the price. You're going to have to face the music and pay the price. We see this in verse 1. And Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So the thing he was worried about last week, his brother showing up, the brother who he had wronged, Remember how he wronged his brother Esau. When they were much, much younger, Esau came in from hunting in the field. He was famished. Jacob had been cooking. Esau saw the stew that he cooked. It must have smelled wonderful. Esau said, give me some of that stew. Jacob, smarty pants that he was, fancy pants that he was, said, hey, you know what? I'll give you stew if you sell me your birthright. Esau's like, what good is a birthright to me? I'm about to die from hunger. And so Esau, in that moment sold his birthright to Jacob, as the New King James puts it, for a mess of pottage, for a bowl of stew. So Jacob tricked, at least took advantage of his brother in taking his birthright in exchange for that bowl of stew, and then years later, out and out, stole his blessing, pretended to be Esau. Remember that? He wore the skins of dead animals on his arms. His mom cooked his father's favorite meal, and he deceived his father Isaac, pretending to be the older brother Esau, and stole the blessing that should have gone to Esau as the firstborn. Esau was rightfully so upset about this that he was going to kill Jacob. And so Jacob had to flee from his father's house to Padan Aram, where he has spent the last 20 years serving under Lavan, his now father-in-law, father of Leah and Rachel, his two wives. And so this reckoning has now come home. Jacob has to now go out and face the music. I want to point out that Jacob wasn't blameless. Okay, neither are you. Neither am I. We tend to think that we're so hard done by. But we see here a reminder that we are often to be blamed for the evils that we have to walk through. Not always, but often. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, I think because there are no truly good people. There is a difference here between a Christian worldview and a non-Christian worldview. It is very chic in our age of the world to say that everyone is basically good. 
Okay, now that is true in that God made everything that is and made all things good. But the Christian must say in the same breath, and all those good things fell, were cursed, and were broken when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden. And as a result, from that day to this, these people who still bear in their image of godness some residual goodness. It is true that we see goodness at work in people all around us. Let's call it small g goodness. All these people are not essentially good. They were made good, but they have fallen. All of us are sinful, fallen, and broken. There are no good people. The Bible clearly teaches this in Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of men and women was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. This is pre-Noah's flood. And so because every intention of their heart was only evil continually, God wiped them out. And what I find really scary about the account of Noah's day is if you read about how those people were acting, it's exactly how we act in this day and age. And you're like, so why doesn't God wipe us out? Because of rainbows, right? The rainbow symbolized his promise. He wrote his promise in the sky, promising to Noah and his family that he would never again destroy the earth. But that does not mean that from that day to this, we have remembered the rainbow in the sky. Look around you. Our world is dark. Have you ever met somebody who says, people are basically good? Next time someone says that, ask them, are we living in the same world? Really? On your way to grace, I want you to be really honest about what's your fault and accept the reckoning when it comes. Okay, I know it, you know it, nobody likes the reckoning when it comes. But if you've done something that has brought a reckoning, just accept it and walk through it with God's help. Don't try to avoid it, it's only going to make matters worse. On your way to grace, be really honest about why you need grace. Realizing that you're never going to be completely free of your messed up personal agenda. This is what we see clearly at work in Jacob's heart in verse 1b through verse 2. So look at the second half of verse 1 through verse 2. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two two female servants. And he put the servants with all their children in front, then Leah with her children, then Rachel and Joseph last of all. He's playing favorites. Now, if we're honest, to some degree, this is normal. All of us play favorites. We have a favorite team, we have a favorite meal, we have a favorite chair, we have a favorite place in the city where we like to hang out in the springtime, we have favorite clothes, we never admit it, but maybe we have a favorite child, right? That's a hard one. You're like, I'm supposed to love them all equally, but there's one that you get along with better than the others. We play favorites. To some degree, this is normal. But I want you to imagine this moment from the perspective of Zilpah, Bilchah, Leah, and their kids. Why is Jacob setting them in order here? He's like, well, Zilpah, you and your kids are going to go first. Why, Dad? Well, Uncle Esau's coming. He might be killing everybody, so I want you to get killed first. Then after you, because I like you a little better, Bilchah, you can go second. You and your kids can die second. And then right at the end, hopefully we figured it out by then, I'm going to put... Um, Rachel and, and Joseph, because they're my favorites. Imagine being the kids, and the Bible doesn't really say how the kids felt, but the Bible says the kids were there. So it behooves us, I think, to think about their perspective. What do we do for you to put us first in the line of fire, Dad? 
Jacob's brokenness here is on full display, and this speaks to me about my brokenness. On your way to grace, remember that your personal agenda can wound people. The more power you have, the more this is difficult. Your personal agenda can wound people, so at the very least, be mindful And I want to say to you this morning that mindfulness is not an Eastern teaching that we as Jesus' people need to eschew. Let each of you have the mind of Christ. The New Testament clearly teaches mindfulness. Okay, In light of the fact that your personal agenda can wound people, at the very least, let's learn to be mindful. At the very best, let's learn to love like Jesus loves. Greater love hath no one than this than to lay down their life for their friends, the love that Jesus exhibited and the love that, teaches, that Jesus taught was agape love, self-giving love. So at the very best, love like Jesus loved. Here's the point, and this is something with which we can change the world. Selflessness will go a long way towards mending the world. Now, selflessness is scary. Why? Because sometimes you feel like you're the only one doing this and that that puts you at a disadvantage in the marketplace. You ever felt that way? My wife, Nikki, would still be sitting on Stone Road waiting to turn left. She's just that nice. She'd be sitting there with her signal on waiting for someone to show her grace. Okay, so you feel like your life is going to be like Nikki on Stone Road. You're never going to get anywhere because you're applying this clear teaching to be selfless. If you feel that way, if you feel like being selfless is going to put you at a disadvantage in our dark world, you're right. Okay, and it's my privilege to tell you this morning that The way to grace is often a lonely road. We see this in verse 3. He himself, Jacob, went on before them alone. He himself went on before them. He set his family on the other side of the brook, and alone he goes to face the music. Some parts of this journey with Jesus, you're going to have to walk alone. Now that doesn't sound like good news, but I want to tell you, if you are a Jesus person, which is what Christian means, it means little Christ then what's true for Jesus is going to be true for you. What was true for Jesus? Let me tell you some things that were true about Jesus. He was driven into the wilderness alone for 40 days of fasting and temptation in Mark 1.12. He frequently withdrew alone to lonely places to pray in Luke 5.16. He was alone in anguish, begging for relief in the Garden of Gethsemane recorded in Matthew 26.39. He alone is scourged before Pilate Mocked and then crucified. This is recorded in Matthew 27, 26, and 40 through 44. Let me read to you the sequence where they mock him. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. On him alone was the chastisement for our peace, as recorded in Isaiah, prophesied, 53 verse 5. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live, as recorded in 1 Peter 2 and 24. He alone cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Matthew 27, 46, he alone, deciding it was time, said, it is finished, and he yielded up his spirit in John 19, 30, and Matthew 27, 50, he 
alone was buried in the tomb of a righteous man in John 19, 38 and 42. And he alone rose up the third day. Okay, with a little help from the Holy Ghost in Romans 6, 10. He alone ascended in Acts 1, 6 to 11. He alone will return as conquering king, judge and Lord. And yes, all the hosts of heaven with him when he comes again in glory to make all things new as recorded in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, 20, 11 through 15, and 21, 1 through 5. On your way to grace, if things get lonely, tell your loneliness about your Jesus. Tell your loneliness about your Jesus. Do you see the difference? Do not avoid loneliness. Walk into it bravely, knowing that Jesus walked there before you and that Jesus walks there with you today. Do you see the difference? It's a crucial difference. Do not avoid it. Walk through it because Jesus walks at your side and the spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells within you so you are never alone. And then eat your humble pie and eat it good, but expect good things. If that makes you cry, it's okay because you're biblical. Look at verses 3 and 4. It's exactly what happens. Jacob went on before them alone, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Okay, here's the humility part. Verse 3. He alone approached his brother. He bows himself to the ground seven times. Okay, to bow yourself to the ground seven times was what you did when you were facing royalty. So he is treating Esau like his king. Okay, he's eating his humble pie on your way to grace. The sooner you realize that nobody can make you humble but you, the better. How true is this? Are you like me? Are you, you know who the sons of Hamor are later in the chapter? Hamog means donkey. I am the son of Hamog. Okay, I'm as stubborn as a you-know-what. Are you as stubborn as me? Yes, no, nobody's as stubborn as me. Some of you are as stubborn as me. I know you a little bit. Okay, the sooner we realize that no one can make you humble but you, the fewer beatings you're going to take. Like, God is not going to relent until you bow the knee. The sooner you realize, the better. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And look, just because you're learning humility doesn't mean you always have to expect life to be horrible. Why is that? Well, because we're in the grace business here. This is not the justice department, after all. Okay, so this means that though you're always bracing yourself for the yeah, but, are you doing this? Yeah, things are good, but... Yeah, it didn't turn out as badly as I thought, but are you a yeah, but kind of person? I know some of you are. You don't want to admit it. I won't ask you to, but you know you're a yeah, but kind of person. You're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're always waiting for the rug to get pulled out from under your feet. Okay? Because grace is real, sometimes it's a good but that's coming. I need to make a t-shirt that says, here's the good buts. (laughs) You know? Here's the good buts. Because verse 4, because of verse 4, but... Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it is. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is Jesus telling what? The parable of who? The prodigal son. Where? In Luke 15 and 20. 
This is a very good but, and if that kind of good grace doesn't make you weep, I don't know what will. Imagine Jacob's waiting for his brother to come and wipe him out, and instead, love blossoms on his face, and he runs to his younger brother, and he grabs him, and he kisses him, and he bursts into tears. That, my friend, is grace, and that is what you can expect because of Jesus. On your way to grace, remember that grace is running to you. Y'all feel me? Picture that this week. Grace is running to you. And you know what effect that grace is going to have in you? The effect that grace has is contentment. We see this in verse 9 and in verse 11. Esau says, I don't need this gift. Why? Because I have enough. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have to yourself. Jacob says, no, 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 no. You need to take this. I've seen your face. You look like God. I just finished wrestling with him. You're you're like an angel. You need to take this gift. Why? Well, because God has dealt gracious with me and because I have enough. 20 years later, these warring brothers have realized that they have enough. In fact, one of them, the younger, has realized that he has everything he needs. You know how I know? Because I read the Hebrew. And you know what it says in the Hebrew? Jacob, when he says, I have enough, he says, Ki yesh li kol. Ki, because, yesh, have, li, me, kol, all. I have it all. I have it all. On your way to grace, remember that you have it all. How good is that? How good is that? You have it all. Because remember, i got to remind you all the time, right? You have been grafted into the lineage of the patriarchs by the work of God in Christ. So the promise that Jacob's walking in is the same promise that you're walking in. Hallelujah! So when your patriarch says, I have it all, you're like, that's right. My patriarch has it all because of Jesus. I have it all. Now here's something very encouraging. Worship team, I'm almost done. You can come join me. Even with all that, because maybe you have this like nagging doubt in your mind that you're like, yeah, but I'm still a bit of an idiot. If that's you, welcome to the club, because I am also. Even with all that, if you still find yourself dealing in half measures of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, like Jacob does in verses 13 through 17, what a rat. I hate this passage. I always hated this part of the passage. Even when I came to it this time, I was hoping that somehow the passage would have changed. And then when Esau invites Jacob to come with him to travel home, that Jacob would say, yeah, bro, that sounds good. Let's try. I missed you, man. Let's, let's travel together. Let's make this a party. But no, he doesn't. Jacob says, no, nah, no, nah, you go ahead, man. It's good. I got to go slow. You got an army. You can go fast. Okay, so I, look, look at here. I'll meet you in Seir. Esau trusts him. He's like, okay, good. I'll see you in Seir. And does Jacob go to Seir? doesn't go to Seir. He goes to Sukkot, different town. Still doesn't trust his brother after all this time. After this reconciliation of this beautiful moment, he's still dealing in half measures. So if you're kind of like that from time to time, remember that you're biblical and you need grace. And remember that God's going to bring you full circle in spite of you, like he does with Jacob in verse 18 as I close. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, 
on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. Remember that it was God who told Jacob to leave his home and go home. And then he promised to be with him. This is recorded in Genesis 31.3. Remember? He says, go home, and I will be with you. And God here in verse 18 we see comes through, and Jacob makes it home safely. This is why, for invocation, I read you these words. And if you missed it, here they are again. John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And, most important part, you know the way to where I am going. You know the way to where I am going. On your way to grace, remember that grace is the way. So now that you know that a reckoning is coming, that your personal agenda can wound people, now that you know that you need to tell your loneliness about Jesus, now that you know that nobody can make you humble but you, and that grace is running to you, so contentment should be your way of life, now that you know that you have it all, even though you're still kind of walking with a limp and dealing in half measures, now that you know that God is bringing you home because grace is the way, now that you know all that, act like it because grace is your only hope. 